I'll invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1 and verse 27. Just as you're turning there, I did uh, mean to, uh, at the start of the service, bring just a good report to you from uh, Kisby, as they've been meeting uh, Sunday mornings, just starting to preach and gather people and start that preaching station. This morning, Peter gave a little historical background to the Reformation and and leading into a series on the five solas of the Reformation, some foundational matters to uh, what that church is going to stand for there once it's formally planted. And then Kevin's been preaching through 1 John, so he continued that this morning. So just let's just make sure we continue to to keep praying for them and um, their busy families and uh, are trying to get that off the ground and desire to be freer, to, to evangelize and, and pour into that. So uh, let's just continue to, to hold them up. Uh, but that's exciting work that's happening there in Kisby and area as well. And there will be more to report, I'm sure, Wednesday as well. And so anyway, uh, but let's turn our attention here to Philippians chapter 1. And uh, we're going to read verse 27 through to verse 30. the word of God. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So as we come now to the end of this first chapter of Philippians Uh, Paul gives here what many would consider to be the thesis of this entire book or a summary of what he's going to continue to unfold through to the end of Philippians. And so having already addressed, if you recall from previous weeks, having already addressed his own situation in prison and what is going on and the advance of the gospel and the conflict that continues to surround him and the blessing as well and the rejoicing of Paul. Paul now turns to the Philippians themselves, and he turns to his exhortation of them. In this section, in in verse 27, we have the first imperative of the book of Philippians, the very first uh, command that we find in the book. So he's turning now, he's addressing them, and he says to them, he begins here with the word only, which indicates that this is a primary concern for Paul. Uh, so he has expressed a desire to come with them, to come see them again. He's hopeful he'll get out of prison and his hearing will go well and he'll be able to see them and they'll glorify God together. Uh, but he says, only above all, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. This is Paul's concern here. And he goes on to say, whether I come and see you or I'm absent. So regardless of how this turns out, even if I'm not able to be released and come to you, Uh, Either way, only 
Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That command, that call to live worthy of the gospel can be a very daunting thing to read and to consider. It can be very intimidating. We wonder, how can I possibly conduct myself with such purity that makes me worthy of the gospel? Uh, That seems to hang an impossible weight around the neck. That might be how we read this, but I don't believe at all that that's Paul's purpose. Kind of jumped out there. A couple of things here, I think, make this clear. First of all, this phrase translated in the ESV as let your manner of life be. That's translating just one Greek word. And it's a word which Charles Spurgeon points out signifies the actions and the privileges of citizenship. So there's a footnote in the ESV, if you're looking at one of those, that gives an alternate translation that I think is perhaps a better translation that says, behave as citizens worthy of the gospel. Paul is appealing to the Philippians' true citizenship in the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, the kingdom of God. So later in the book, in chapter 3 and verse 20, Paul will say, but our citizenship is in heaven. It is a citizenship, Paul refers to, that is the result of God's saving work in the life of believers, redeeming sinners, transferring them from the kingdom of darkness and sin into the kingdom of light and the kingdom of God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. This, of course, is a gracious work of God. It is a salvation. It is a transfer into God's kingdom that is a a gracious work of God that is received by faith alone. It is not a result of works. We contribute nothing to that. Sinners cannot possibly live worthy enough to merit entrance into that kingdom. Entrance is won. It is earned by the Lord Jesus Christ alone through his perfect life, and then his death for sinners and satisfying God's wrath for our sins upon the cross, burying the sins of man, and then rising again from the dead. And so Paul is not, as he says, to live worthy of the gospel here. He's not laying some legalistic sort of striving upon you here. Rather, he's addressing this to those who've received God's gracious gift of salvation Through faith, those who are already made citizens of his kingdom as a gift of God's grace. Second, the word worthy here, when he says to live worthy of the gospel, again, that might sound like we're now trying to pay God back or something like that for our citizenship. Or we're now trying to prove that we are worthy and deserving recipients of God's love. We're trying to uh, earn this now, perhaps. We should understand rather, it's not what this is saying, but that this word worthy is really communicating that we are to live in a way that is befitting or that is in keeping with or is appropriate and suitable to the gospel. It's not a heavy burden placed upon your back as if you're needing to now pay God back. You've been given this unbelievable gift, but now you're in his debt and you've got to work up to it or else. He's not saying that. 
Rather, it is a call to conduct your life in a manner that is now appropriate with the gospel by which you have been saved. That is suitable to your new citizenship in God's kingdom. Suitable to those who've been redeemed and forgiven much. And if that still seems maybe a little bit vague, Paul is going to go on here in these verses to flesh out some more about what this means. And then, of course, he'll continue throughout the book of Philippians to describe more of what it means to walk as citizens worthy. Now, this command, this call, is appropriate exhortation for the church at any given moment all throughout history. Um, If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, raise your, well, you don't actually, I won't make you raise your hand. Uh, But I would ask, how many of you would desire to live a life worthy of the gospel? You don't have to answer that. You don't have to raise your hand. We're almost getting charismatic here today. (laughs) But for those who are forgiven much, if you understand the weight of your sin and you understand what God has done for you in Christ Jesus in paying for that sin upon the cross and you realize that your only hope of forgiveness and reconciliation with God is the Lord Jesus Christ. Is it not your desire to walk in a way that adorns the gospel of God's gracious and kind salvation to you? To live in and carry out the actions and privileges of your heavenly citizenship. I'm confident that it is. And this is what Paul draws our attention to. And he tells us what this looks like, what this includes and what this involves. In these verses before us, God calls us as a church to live in a manner befitting the gospel and our kingdom citizenship. He goes on, as I said, to explain what it means for the Philippians and, of course, for you and I, by extension, to walk worthy of the gospel. And the first thing I want us to note is that walking worthy of the gospel is a corporate endeavor. Walking worthy of the gospel is a corporate endeavor. What I mean by that is it is a whole church matter. If I were to ask you what you first think of when you hear the words of Paul to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, I wonder what came to your mind, what you instantly think of. I suspect that for many of us, we would think about the pursuit of personal holiness. Namely, I should... Read my Bible more. I should pray more. I should mortify, kill my sin with a greater zeal. I should engage in personal evangelism more, and so on. And of course, all of those things are good and are certainly part of that. They're befitting the Christian life. But the focus here is not merely on the individual Christian. Paul's emphasis here is on the church walking worthily together. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this point, but I just I do want to draw it out because I think we could possibly miss it, even though I think it's really uh, clear here. As Paul addresses the church here in this letter, the church of the Philippians, he has their corporate life and their corporate witness together in view. And we see it Quite clearly, 
As verse 27 continues here, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. He says, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side. So he's addressing the whole church. Sees us as a group effort. The standing firm and the striving are not simply things that are done as individual Christians off in our private dwellings. But this is to be done together and to be done in a unified manner. A similar command to this is found in Philippians, or sorry, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. There's a similar command. It says to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And then Paul there also immediately goes on to call them to maintain the the unity of the faith, the bond of unity and the bond of the spirit. He goes on to address the matter of unity. Again, even there, it's a church matter. It's the bond of peace. I know we're stuck on that. I'm stuck on that. So we're once again reminded here the Christian life is not simply an individual one. It does not deny that we are individuals that make up the church, but it does remind us of the importance of the church and the corporate aspect of this effort. As a church, walking worthy of the gospel, again, is not something we just disperse and go do completely separately and individually, but together that we do as one, with one mind, side by side. And so if you have not given sufficient thought to the corporate aspect of the Christian life, I'd encourage you to see the inescapably corporate nature of what Paul is talking about here. And I would ask you to consider whether or how you are walking worthy of the gospel in the way that is outlined here if the church and if other people have been kept simply at a distance from you. Or if it has in some way been viewed as optional. I would submit to you, you can't obey this command if you do not link up with the local church. Walking worthy of the gospel is a corporate endeavor. It is done with the church. It involves other brothers and sisters. And so as a church, we're called to live in a manner befitting the gospel and our kingdom citizenship. And we first note that this is indeed a church-wide corporate matter. Secondly, walking worthy of the gospel involves the church standing firm as one in the face of opposition. Involves the church standing firm as one in the face of opposition. So after telling the Philippians to walk worthy, Paul explains what he hopes to hear of them. Whether he's able to go to them or he's just distant and he's hearing reports. And in saying what he hopes to hear, he reveals what walking worthy involves. He says, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. To stand firm here means being firmly committed in conviction and belief and therefore not budging. 
Many see in this, I think appropriately, military imagery. The image of soldiers who determinedly refuse to leave their posts, irrespective of how severely the battle rages. And as these verses continue, and as we continue through Philippians, we will see that the Philippians were indeed facing opposition. They were facing adversaries of various sorts. They were in battle. And a church that is walking worthy of the gospel is a church that stands firm in this in one spirit. There are two participles that follow the words stand firm, which fill out what it means to stand firm. This comes across more clearly in the Greek text. But Paul is explaining here what it means to stand firm. He's filling this out more. The first participle is at the end of verse 27 and reveals that standing firm includes striving as one for the faith of the gospel. He says, But I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Standing firm as a church involves striving as one man for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. That word striving, again, has a sense of struggle, of contending, of battle, another battle term, revealing this reality that the gospel message is something to be preserved. It is something to be guarded. Yes, it is something to be fought over if necessary. It implies that attacks will come against the faith. And that is the church's duty as citizens of the kingdom of God, to stand firm in its defense. You probably recall the book of Jude. As Jude begins his letter to a group of believers, this is what he says in Jude 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, so this is what he wants to just write about, this, their common salvation, the glory of the gospel. He says, although that's what I wanted to do, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Fight for this. Why? For, he says, certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. There's people in your midst, he's saying, who've crept in, you didn't even realize it, and they've perverted the gospel. You need to contend for this. Obviously, pastors and elders ought to certainly lead this defense, but it is not something that should simply concern elders. It is done side by side, he says. It is to be a united effort that the whole church participates in. While this certainly implies preserving and defending the pure doctrine of the gospel, that a sinner is justified by God's grace alone, through faith in Jesus Christ alone, is to be defended against false teachers. This also means battling together side by side against whatever kind of opposition might arise. 
This is working to promote the cause of the gospel anywhere and everywhere we can. This would no doubt include evangelism. And then withstanding the enemy in whatever form he chooses to rage. Later in Philippians, we're going to see that there were indeed false teachers threatening the Philippian church, trying to make their way in. We'll see that very clearly in chapter 3. But if you remember when Paul was in Philippi founding the church in Acts chapter 16, he was thrown in jail there, you recall. He was beaten, thrown in jail, the Philippian jailer, remember his miraculous conversion. He was accused prior to that when he was being arrested and beaten and thrown in jail. He was accused of disturbing the city. That was the accusation. Is that really what Paul was doing? Was he really guilty of that? There was a disturbance, but was that... Are we to lay the blame at Paul's feet for having caused that disturbance? Absolutely not. Paul is commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ, as the church is and always has been, to go and make disciples. And that involves preaching the gospel. Jesus said in the Great Commission, All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. The church's mission has the blessing of heaven itself and the authority of heaven itself, which is why when people say, no, you can't do that, or they don't want you to preach Christ or whatever it is, and you can't fulfill your mission in some way, the church does not bow to that because heaven itself, Christ who has all authority over any other earthly authority, tells us what we are to do and has given us permission to go ahead with this mission. That's what Paul was doing. And so when he went in to to preach in different cities and people lost their minds and got mad at him and all kinds of accusations and, you know, uh, get upset with him and he's disturbing people everywhere he goes. These are the kinds of accusations. And this is why he was on trial. But really, ultimately, as we saw earlier in Philippians, he was there because of his defense and confirmation of the gospel. That's why he was imprisoned. The church stands together for the sake of the gospel, for its promotion and for its defense, striving side by side against all opposition in whatever form it may come. And so the church stands firm by striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Then there's another phrase, the second participle, instructing us about what it means to stand firm. So again, standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving, in verse 28, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Standing firm involves not being frightened in anything by those who oppose you. Again, if we remember back to last week, if we have the mindset that to live is Christ and to die is gain, we can see how we need not fear man. We need not fear those who might revile the gospel and threaten us. And Paul's going to give further reasoning why we need not fear in the following verses, and we'll look at that in just a moment. But first, just notice that part of standing firm is standing without fear. We don't need to fear the raging of Satan, the raging of the world. 
Typically, we want to justify our fears. But walking worthy of the gospel involves standing firm without fear. Not fearing man. This is God's word saying this to us, to you. Charles Spurgeon also said, Men call the courage of the saints obstinacy and reckon them to be hardened heretics. The world may not like fearlessness for the cause of Christ, but God calls us to this. Walking worthy of the gospel as citizens of the New Jerusalem includes standing firm in the face of opposition. I realize how this cuts some of us deeply. We do not like the idea of battle. Maybe you were raised on a steady diet of bad teaching that left you with the understanding that loving Jesus and serving him should gain you the respect of other people. That if you're doing it right, man will applaud you. That if if people don't like you, it's got to be because you said something the wrong way or you're doing something wrong. And this is just simply not what the Bible says. Again, nobody loved perfectly except Jesus. Nobody taught more purely than Jesus. Nobody has been perfect except Jesus. And we see what the world did to Jesus. They nailed him to a tree. And in God's good design, that was for our salvation. And so this call to not be afraid of the world, to not fear your opponents, is something for you to to reckon with. This is what scripture teaches you. And to gird yourself as you prepare for battle. This is also, I think, a good place to just stop and reflect on the fact that we should do all that we can to keep our battle mode focused on those that are truly opponents. We are not to be pugnacious. We are not to be going around picking fights where we're causing unnecessary division, especially within the church. We know when sin and error enters into the church. The Bible instructs us on how we proceed with that. We have Matthew 18. It comes to mind going to our brother and sister and showing them their fault. We go with a spirit of humility, dealing with the log in our own eyes. Within the church, your brothers and sisters are not your enemies. Again, the unity of the church, the oneness of mind and spirit runs throughout this passage. We do not battle one another. Rather, we stand together against outside forces and opponents. And of course, we know our ultimate opponent is not flesh and blood. As a church, we are called to live in a manner befitting the gospel and our kingdom citizenship. And this involves standing firm in the face of opposition. And thirdly, 
Walking worthy of the gospel involves understanding that our battle is noble and good. Walking worthy of the gospel involves understanding that our battle is noble and good. Again, the idea and the imagery of the Christian life as battle is maybe disturbing to some. Perhaps we even think it's unbecoming of the gospel for anyone to be involved in any sort of arguing. Or maybe it's just disturbing because of a fear of suffering. Well, Paul helps us here to turn our eyes to the truth about this matter, to see the goodness of this battle and God's good purposes in suffering along the way. So look again with me. This is in the middle of verse 28. He says, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. This is a bit of a a difficult sentence to unpack. But I would suggest to you that what this is saying is that the persistent opposition of the Philippians' opponents is clear evidence that those adversaries are under God's condemnation and judgment. That they would afflict God's people is clear evidence that they are worthy of God's judgment. And then that's what's coming to them unless they repent. Unless they turn to Christ, as Paul himself did, once a persecutor of the church. The opponents may not see this sign now. They may not see the evidence of this now. But it will one day be revealed and prove God's judgment. John Calvin says here, the wicked here give a token of their condemnation. This is a similar concept to what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2.15. There he writes this. He says, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this opposition the Philippians were facing is the fruit of the ungodly who were under God's condemnation, pointing ahead to their coming judgment. And yet, also he goes on to say that the reverse is true of the Philippians. That all of this is a sign of your salvation and that from God. Their suffering, he says, is a sign. It's evidence that they are indeed saved. It is evidence that they belong to God. And that when the Lord Jesus returns to grant his people relief, they'll be among that number. In Acts 14.22 This is after Paul was stoned and left for dead. Uh, In in the flow of Acts, it looks like it happens right away. Obviously, there is some time of recovery. But he he goes back in the places he'd just come from where he'd been stoned and persecuted and run off. Goes back strengthening the churches. And wouldn't you have liked to hear him say this? Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Scars all over him. Having lived it. The strange reality is suffering for the sake of Christ is a sign of salvation. 
The reformer John Calvin writes this. This, therefore, is a choice consolation. That when we are assailed and harassed by our enemies, we have an evidence of our salvation. For persecutions are in a manner seals of adoption to the children of God, if they endure them with fortitude and patience. Again, this might seem odd. But Paul's going to go on to say something even more surprising and and I think even more shocking. Uh, He says this in verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. The opposition that has brought suffering is actually said here to be granted to the Philippians. It's implied that it is God who has done this granting. The Greek word for granted means to give freely as a favor, to give graciously. In fact, the root word is the word grace. So I think granted is a good translation that communicates this. It's a gift It's a kindness, he's saying, from God. This is so shocking and jarring at first. It is clear that Paul means it this way because there's two things in this verse that are said to be granted to the Philippians. The first is one that we might expect, and that is they've been granted to believe. They've been granted, gifted, graciously given faith. He says, it is granted for you that for the sake of Christ you should not only Believe. It is easier to affirm faith as a freely given grant from God in his grace. I mean, I guess some people trip over that. But that was one that I think the Philippians and we might expect Paul to say, God has graciously granted that you believe. But to apply that same language of grant to suffering for Christ's sake is a more difficult pill to swallow. And yet, there it is. Again, this is a reminder that there is nothing that escapes God's providence. That although adversaries will mean your harm, adversaries will seek to ruin the Lord's people God means this for good. That as he worked in the life of Joseph, as his brothers meant evil to him and all that they did against him, and yet at the end of the book of Genesis, he can tell his brothers that what you meant for evil, God meant for good. This has not changed. This is how God operates with his people. In his providence, Suffering to you is God's gift to you for your good ultimately. All things are designed ultimately for your good. Again, we've already been looking at this as Paul is in prison and yet he's rejoicing and yet he's seeing that all of this is going to work out toward his salvation. God is bringing him through this path of suffering, but this is the way it is. And so he's able to still rejoice. And now he's telling the Philippians, the same thing is happening to you. 
There's a hymn by William Cooper. God moves in a mysterious way. And here's, here's one of the verses. It says, You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. The Christian life involves carrying the cross, following our Lord in receiving the reproach of the world. Hebrews talks about this. Moses chose rather to suffer the reproach of Christ and to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin in Egypt. It calls us to go outside the camp to suffer alongside Christ, the reproach of Christ. This conflict has always raged and it will continue until Christ's return. Notice Paul says that basically in the last line here. He says that they were engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. The Philippians remembered, of course, how their church was formed when Paul showed up and preached and got thrown in jail and was beaten and abused and and all that went on. They saw that conflict, that suffering. And now as they have lost track, but then they've caught up with Paul. He's in Rome. He's in prison. They've sent Epaphroditus to him to supply some of his need. They've heard he's there. He's still suffering. He's still engaged in this conflict. And Paul actually calls it the same conflict. You're suffering. You're in the same battle as I am. I think that's remarkable. Paul's not battling something unique that the super Christians battle while the peasant Christians over here are kind of doing something else. They're not really in the game so much as the Apostle Paul is. That's not how he views it. We see Paul's humility. It's the same conflict. They're in the same struggle. That word conflict is the word we get agony from. It means a struggle against opposition, a fight. The saints throughout the ages have engaged in this. It's the same conflict. There are various fronts, but really just the one war. It is the battle between the offspring of Satan and the chosen of the Lord. Again, we noted today is Reformation Sunday. We mark a mark it as a significant battle in this greater war, in this greater conflict. It's been ongoing. It's the same battle today. It's the same battle we face. Everywhere the church is, with varying degrees of opposition, we can recognize that plainly. Everywhere the church is, with varying degrees of opposition, kingdom citizens living in a way befitting the gospel are engaged in this battle, such as the privilege of the Christian and the church. And so it's important, I think, to understand this and to understand the high and holy calling when suffering for Christ comes. This calls you and I to renew our thinking, to think rightly about opposition for Christ's sake. It is not a sign of having done it all wrong or that you're under God's curse. It is not something to be feared or to be avoided at all costs. It is part of being a citizen soldier in the new Jerusalem. 
When it comes, it is actually coming to you as a grant from the Father, who ultimately means it for your good, for your sanctification. Again, it is a sign of your salvation when you suffer for Christ. In none of this does it mean that suffering becomes easy. I don't think this means we just smile the whole way through it and never feel the pain of it. We absolutely feel the pain of it. But it's recognizing that even in this, God is doing good work in his people. And in that, there can be rejoicing. Again, this is not just pretending that the pain's not real. Again, it must be Reformation Sunday, because I want to quote again from John Calvin. He says, Hence, even the sufferings themselves are evidences of the grace of God. And since it is so, you have from this source a token of salvation. Oh, if this persuasion were effectually inwrought in our minds, that persecutions are to be reckoned among God's benefits, what progress would be made in the doctrine of piety or godliness? And yet, what is more certain than that it is the highest honor that is conferred upon us by divine grace that we suffer for his name, either reproach or imprisonment or miseries or tortures or even death, For in that case, he adorns us with his marks of distinction. But more will be found that will rather bid God retire with gifts of that nature than embrace with alacrity, cheerful readiness, the cross when it is presented to them. Alas, then, for our stupidity. And so I would just encourage you to keep your head up, even at the threat of suffering for Christ's sake, To take fresh courage and to ban the notion from your thinking that all suffering is bad and to be avoided. To war against the idea of pursuing an easygoing life above all. And to engage instead in this battle and prepare to stand side by side in whatever way the battle rages. Barring a tremendous work of God's mercy and grace, I I don't think it's going to get easier. Just saying and teaching what God's word says about very basic concepts like male and female, marriage, is there are those who want to make that illegal. I just, we need to prepare ourselves. We need to pray. But we also need not be constantly down in the dumps given what Paul says here. That if suffering increases and comes our way even more so, it'll be God's Gracious gift to us. We need to arm ourselves with this way of thinking. Renew our minds in this truth. To view this battle rightly. 
So walking worthy of the gospel means standing firm together as one, as a church, in the face of opposition, armed with the proper understanding of the noble calling that it is to engage in this battle. Let us take the mind of Christ in this and by God's grace ready ourselves with joy. Let us commit ourselves to our gracious Lord and to one another, seeking to stand together with one mind and with one spirit. This is what it means to live in a manner befitting the gospel and befitting our kingdom citizenship. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would arm us with biblical thinking in these matters. Father, we we tremble at the thought of suffering so often. But I pray that you would free us from the fear of man. We know that we need not fear man. It is true that man could harm our body, but even if man is to kill us, then we are, at that point, gaining much, as Paul says. And so as the Lord has taught us, we are to fear you who can kill both body and soul in hell. Father, I pray that you would help us to be heavenly minded, that we would be so convinced of the truth of your word and so certain of what is to come that you would increase our love for you, that you would increase our faith, you would increase our confidence in you, that you would just continue to to work your sanctification in our hearts. Father, we know that we are weak and we know that we need your grace to help us to stand. And that as times of adversity come, if it is just left to us, we will crumble as Peter did. And so we are praying for your grace to strengthen us to stand. Father, we thank you so much for your word that corrects us, that encourages us. And we thank you above all for the salvation that is freely given in Christ Jesus to all who believe. And that this is not something we are seeking to earn, but we freely receive it as a gift of your grace through faith. Father, I pray that every person here would hope solely in the Lord Jesus Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. Father, we we give you praise and thanks. And we pray that you would just bless the rest of our time together as we continue to fellowship. Father, help us to even just grow as a church in unity and in grow together as one. And Father, even as we are working at splitting off into three churches in Regina, Kisby, and here, I pray that in each spot, that in your timing when those days come, that each group would truly be of one mind and one spirit. Give us patience and love for one another. And Father, even as we split into three churches, I pray that we would also just continue to support one another and stand with each other, even as churches. Father, spread your gospel throughout the land. Draw many more to faith. 
Give us the courage needed, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.